This podcast is made possible by Sound Toys, makers of the award-winning Echo Boy and a full line of professional audio effects plugins. Twist, morph, drive, and push your creativity to brave new worlds with the analog attitude of Sound Toys. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Not only is Susan Rogers a record producer, engineer, mixer, and audio electronics technician, she has a doctorate in psychology, having studied music cognition and psychoacoustics from McGill University. As an engineer, Susan really got her start working with Prince from 1983 to 1988, including albums like Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade, Sign of the Times, and The Black Album. Her other studio sessions have included artists like Bare Naked Ladies, David Byrne, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Rusted Root, Tricky, Geggy Ta, and Michael Penn. She is currently the director of the Berkeley College of Music's Perception and Cognition Laboratory and is an associate professor at Berkeley. Portions of this interview were conducted after a listen to a vinyl LP of Purple Rain in front of a live audience during the Saturday night listening party at the Welcome to 1979 Recording Summit, held every November in Nashville. And the rest of this interview took place between Susan and I the following day. Enjoy. This audio recording was not originally tracked with the intent of using for a podcast. It was recorded solely for transcription for our print interview. Please forgive any balance issues, background sounds, or lack of clarity. Enjoy. We were all young then, and it's like, yeah, everybody's 24 years old, of course. You know, we, we didn't really get it. But listening to that, I can't think of a, of a, I can't think of a peer. I'm thinking of Kanye West. And right. I'm thinking of Michael Jackson. And I'm thinking of, you know, I'd take any lone genius you care to name. How many? Michael Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, right. There are, there are people. David Bowie, right. But... This is one man playing all the instruments and writing all the songs and singing all the parts with no producer and no engineer for all intents and purposes because I joined him as a tech. <laughs> this is one guy. This is what you do when you take a brilliant genius, you give him a lot of money and you put him in a room with all the toys and that's what he made. So it still amazes you to, to hear it all. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Because you can't find examples of, of many parallels and when you think about it you hear that guitar you hear his incredible keyboard skills and you realize at any given moment on that record he could do that like he could have filled up that record with virtuoso guitar playing with virtuoso keyboard playing with virtuoso singing and he'll do 10 minutes of do, 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 just drum machine and baby I'm a star and there, there, here's another thing I mean to consider his lyrics not, it's not Leonard Cohen. But think about... He's talking about an us. I would die for you. Let's us go crazy. Take me with you. It's a generous record. He's, he's happy to be alive. He's happy to be 24. He loves people, clearly. He's not a sexual predator. 
He's not talking about, I will conquer you. Yeah. He's not <laughs> that, that braggadocio of young men of, you know, I'm better than all my rivals. No. It's, there's us and we're having fun. We're young and we're having fun. That's pretty great. And when you consider, especially, he was all alone. It's one guy in North Minneapolis. All alone. He was so alone that he created his own competition. He created the time and Vanity time. Six. Right. <laughs> yeah, to make it seem as though there was more of him. And it was all him. He played all the instruments, wrote all their songs, <laughs> recorded the whole thing, and then had them come in and do the guide vocal. That's one man, a very young man, who also made a movie and, you know. <laughs> Holy shit. Music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What kind of atmosphere or what preparation did he do to do his vocals? I just sang him. I mean, it's not like he did any vocal warmups. I'm not being flippant. I know what you mean, but he, uh, the, way, the way we worked was um, he would program the drum machine. A lot of the drumming you hear, like the double kicks and the tom fills and everything, he's playing those with his fingers. There'd be a one-bar or two-bar loop on the Lin drum machine. It was actually not the Lin drum. It was the LM1, the older one. So there's this loop, and he's playing all the fills on Take Me With You, those the toms, and the double kick on Darling Nikki first. He has the entire arrangement in his head as tape is rolling. And there's this one bar loop, and he's playing the whole song in his head. Then the basic keyboard parts go on, the basic rhythm, bass, if there is bass, bass synths stop. I would um, route the vocal for him and put a piece of white tape on the patch cord to show him where it was, arm the tape machine to put the track on, put the track on input, and then leave the room so he could do the vocals all by himself because he didn't want anybody there. So he'd do the lead vocal all by himself, do the backing vocals, and then I'd come back in, we'd lay down the rest of the instruments. While he was playing, I could be dialing in sounds, so the mix was pretty much ready to go. Uh, we tweaked the mix, um, bring in the girls, Wendy and Lisa, Jill Jones, Susanna, if we're going to do background vocals, or you know, maybe uh, Eric leads with horn and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's all him. Press play on the two-track and, and we, I mean, press record and then we print a mix, go to bed, and four hours later, start all over again. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. Just went, yeah. That's how he did it all the time. That's, that's how he worked every day. Unless we were on tour, and then he's, that's another story, which I, I hope you'll ask me the question because I'd like to answer how that is. <laughs> yeah. This really isn't a question, but I saw him when I was 15, and uh, it changed my life. And I just wanted to thank you for your uh, part. In that. What did, tell, tell, tell us about it. It was, uh, it was very surreal because at the time, you know, I was young, and I just kind of went, and I didn't quite understand what I was getting into. And uh, it was at the queue in Cleveland. And later, I actually read a Rolling Stone article that he, it was a whole interview uh, of that show in particular. Oh. And it was unreal. He played to, I don't know, how many, how many people does the key hold? 20,000. 20, 20, he played to 20,000 people in a circular stage and performed to every single person individually. And it was astounding. Yeah. It, it, it was by far the most prolific concert I've ever I know he did 21 seen. Nights in Los Angeles at the Forum fairly recently and a friend of mine who's one of the great great musicians I know Tommy Jordan is Tommy Jordan is about as good as it gets in my book of all the musicians I've ever seen Tommy saw three of those nights and Tommy said 
You're looking at a guy on stage and you know he's just prowling around, just picking up instruments. He'll play something on the organ and then he'll pick up the guitar and then he'll pick up the bass and then he'll sit on piano. And Tommy said, you know that you're watching a guy who at any, at any moment, at the drop of a dime, could give you the greatest show you've ever seen in your life and chooses not to. Mm -hmm. Like, and Tommy, <laughs> another thing Tommy said is, I hope the kids in the audience don't think that's how it's done. Like, you have to be that good to be able to do whatever you want on stage, and it's still entertaining. Um, he's, he was cut from a very rare piece of cloth. Stevie Wonder did that, his last tour. He got up there and he played can do it. six of his songs, and the rest of the time he had that thing that he plays. Arpeggi. Yeah, and he just, uh -huh. he just like jammed and did other people's songs and talked to the audience and just did some stuff, and it was kind of like, the, you yeah. know, it's like, I can do that because... You know, this was really cool. Nobody complained. It was like, this is so great. We're in a living room with him. Watching yeah. someone's musical mind. But making music was how Prince, it was his way of being in the world. So if he was awake, he was making music. We right. were, if we weren't on tour, he, he was recording. He was either at rehearsal or he was recording in the studio constantly, every day, every day, every day, every day. Uh, even on the movie set, on the, on the movie set, of, he was, we were at home, we were in Minneapolis, so he could just come home and record. And doing Under the Cherry Moon, I had um, the AdVision truck, a mobile truck from London uh, in the south of France. So they were taking their two hour lunch break in the south of France. He could come into the truck, we could work for two hours, record a bunch of stuff, and then he could go back to the movie set and I could be mixing it and editing it. He, he had to be making music. On tour, I'll tell you what a typical day was like on tour. So I read uh, in the plane on the way over here, I'm reading uh, an interview with Adele in Vanity Fair, and she talks about doing sound check for 10 minutes. And many of the veterans especially know that a band will sound check on tour for... 20 minutes maybe, 30 minutes if they need to work something out. If, if it wasn't a one-nighter and we had, the, we had the stage, Prince would sound check for four hours. So he would sound check from two in the afternoon until six o'clock just for fun, just to play new stuff, just to rehearse with the band. He wasn't checking the sound, he just wanted to play. And we're just working out stuff and just playing. Sometimes it'd be a new song that he'd written, it just for four hours. Then he'd have to leave the stage at six, Opening act would come on, sound check from 6 to 6.30. Prince would hit the stage at 8.30, play from 8.30 till 11 or 11.30, like a three-hour set, come off the stage, get in a van, go to the hotel, shower, change clothes, and then do one of two things. One, two things. Either go play an after party, take a stage at a little mm -hmm. club at 1, at 1 a.m., and we'd, all of us, then the band and myself, we'd all go. I had a second truck that was loaded up with a second set of gear, so we'd come off the stage and we'd either go to a club, set up another stage, play this after party till 5 or 6 in the morning, or I would have booked a studio in advance and we would go to a studio and we would record all night. And then get the tapes, get on the plane, sleep on the plane, or get on the bus, go to the next city and do it again. If he was awake... He wanted an instrument in his hand. That was a day for him every day. There, there had to be, there had to be playing involved. That's that's how he lived, and he was on fire. You know, he was young, and that's so. That's what he did every day. Um, who did all the <coughs> programming? Was that all him? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, that was all him. He hated bringing anyone else in because he worked so fast. <laughs> it was all 24-track. He could not wait for two machines to be synchronized. So if he couldn't get it on 24-track, in the years when I was with him, and I was with him from Purple Rain through Sign of the Times on the Black Album, it was never more than 24-track. And there was no automation, because he couldn't wait for that either. <laughs> when you mix, you just hit record on the two-track, and you just, you just do it live. And people have, have interviewed me, and they've asked about you know, him being a perfectionist. And I have to cut them off and say, no, he was not a perfectionist. There was nothing perfect about it. He, he was, what he was was a virtuoso. He was that fluent on so many instruments that we could go super fast. Uh, there was no perfection involved. So anybody else, it was all play catch up. If he had anybody else, it just slowed him down. Yeah. So he would have, if he knew he wanted horns on it, or he wanted the girls to come in and sing background vocals, he'd usually that's when he would have a date. So if he had a date, he'd have, <laughs> he'd have uh, Eric Leeds and uh, Matt Bliston come in and put on horns, or he'd have the girls come in and do backing vocals. And he'd go out and have a date, and then I'd do those recordings with other people. And then he'd come back, dump his date off, whatever. <laughs> Sometimes he'd bring her to the studio until she'd get bored and leave. And then he'd just... <laughs> <laughs> so he just didn't want, to, he didn't want to go through the painful process of watching people work at a normal pace. He could. Yeah. Uh, the song, uh, Take Me With You, where Apollonia is singing that co-lead vocal. Yeah. Um, he, when she joined us, uh, she replaced Vanity because Vanity had, had suddenly split unexpectedly, so Apollonia had to be in the movie and on the record. And he asked her, can you sing? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, you need to like warm up your voice? And she said, okay. So he left me in the studio with her to warm up her voice, and he said to me, you record her vocal. She starts warming up, and she's singing like this. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64, <laughs> I wanted to just like run and go get him and say, Prince, <laughs> this, we might not get this today. <laughs> this might not happen. <clears throat> it was bad. She couldn't sing at all. And so, I mean, she couldn't, bless her heart. She was an actress, but she couldn't sing. So he came and worked with her and had the patience to coach her through line by line to get it. But normally he wasn't that <clears throat> patient. What's he saying at the end of side one? Backwards. backwards stuff, you know, I actually don't remember what that is. Uh, he had a complex relationship with sex. Um, he had a father who was a jazz musician and was very religious, and his father had very strong anti-sex views. So when Prince would have a strong statement of lust, like the song Darling Nikki, they're always, it was usually followed by some kind of exorcism, like Forgive me. Get this out of me. And that backwards vocal. I remember at that time when they, we thought that backwards tracks were in the lock groove of records and it was Satan and it was some yeah, sort of yeah. satanic message. You younger folks won't remember this, but in the 70s and 80s. We were all going to hell. We thought we were all going yeah, to hell because yeah. of backwards messages. Yeah. So it's just a, a, back, a piece of tape that was layered and layered and layered and flipped around backwards. So you're not really sure at all what it was. I don't remember what it was. I knew Should it was. Should we spin it backwards? Spin it backwards. Yeah. 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 Did you hear it? Right. I don't remember what it says. I think I can yeah. quote it. It says, um, hello, how are you? I'm fine because I know that the Lord is coming, coming soon. Wow. That's what it says. This is his way of um, asking for forgiveness yeah. for having <laughs> lusted in his heart. Wow. And, and doing it in a way that was um, artistic. and Great art comes from conflict. 
And he was conflicted for sure. Do you think he had lyric content in his head all the time as well, like all this? He'd build these songs, but do you think he knew what he wanted? About to half the time from? he did. He about half the time he'd come into the studio with a lyric already written, and and he would either play a drum kit, and the lyric would be taped up on a mic stand in front of him. So he'd be reading the lyrics sometimes as he's playing the drums or with the drum machine. Um, usually he did that for pop songs and ballads. But if it's just a straight-up dance number, he'd lay down the groove first. I'd give him a cassette, and he'd take the cassette into the car, play it in the car, write the lyrics, come back in, sing, and then we'd finish it up. <laughs> it was typically a song a day. That's how fast we went. There were rare exceptions where a song would take more than one day, but it was usually a song a day. What about some of the stuff where we hear like strings and things? Are they real strings? Or no, the not, not on this record. No, he didn't have the Fairlight yet either. That's all yeah. Oberheim. It's oh, the really? Oberheim sense. Oh. Wow, that's he crazy. used those. Um, we got the DX7, and oh, God. When he got that DX7, he used that th thing to death. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I really wish he would kind of go back yeah. on uh, Around the World in a Day. It's that oh, yeah. stupid DX7. And then the. Uh, <laughs> I watched it. I mean, I love I loved that thing, but man, he overused it. And then, uh, yeah, he got that right around, he got it right around Purple Rain. So I think the DX7 is on some of those songs. Yeah. Well, that followed up the Synclavier, which was the first <laughs> FM synthesizer. And the DX7 right. was kind of like a, a light version of that. So it had mm. things you couldn't do on any other synthesizer because it was modulation. Yeah, he loved it. Frequency yeah. modulation. And that, that, he probably had a blast with that. Yeah, he loved that. Um, and he got a <clears throat> Fairlight. He had the Fairlight for Sign of the Times. You were, you were working in L.A. as a tech. Yeah. at the time, and then somehow you end up in Minneapolis working with Prince, installing his console, right? I was a, uh, uh, I started my career as a maintenance tech, and I worked yeah. for Audio Industries, the late, great Audio Industries in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and um, we sold and serviced MCI consoles and tape machines, so yeah. my first job was <laughs> learning to repair these consoles and tape machines. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, uh, I did that for a few years, and then I went to work for Crosby, Stills & Nash in Hollywood as their right. studio maintenance tech. They had a studio called Rudy Records, mm -hmm. and I was their maintenance tech in my in my 20s. Mm -hmm. But I was a huge Prince fan. I'd been a Prince fan since, you know, I just loved R&B and soul, and yeah. I heard through the grapevine, actually through Westlake Audio, that Prince was looking for a tech, and I just said, well, then search is over, because that's my job. And uh, I, I talked to Westlake, and they referred me to his management. His management interviewed me, and they hired me. So Prince hired me as a tech, and the first thing I did, I, was asked to do was to pull an old console out of his home studio, install his new API, fix his tape machine, which at that time, um, you people my age will know how great this was, the Ampex MM1200. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. With all the Prestopino so stuff. So good, so good. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it sounded so good. So we had this API, and then we had that. And at Sunset, too, they had the Ampex, the MM1200. Get his stuff all ready. That took about a week. And he's doing pre-production for the movie Purple Rain at this time. And I could hear him in the piano. The piano was, I was downstairs in the home studio, which was just a bedroom. And the piano was right above. And I could hear him playing Purple Rain and playing the beautiful ones and playing Computer Blue, just waiting for the studio to be finished. Wow. I finally got it finished. And the first song I put up was Darling Nikki. He had me put up a tape and he says, get a rough mix. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did the movie come first then? No, no, the movie came afterwards. The movie was in was in the planning scared. stage. As I understand it, um, this kid who was so young has his first crossover hit on the 1999 record with the single Little Red Corvette. 
So he goes to Warner Brothers Records and he goes to his management and he says, for my next album, which will be my sixth album, I want to make a movie. And I want it to be the story of my life and kind of loosely autobiographical and I'm going to write it. And at that time, he was like 23 years old. <laughs> he said, this is, this is what I want to do. And they knew they had this star in the making who had just had, after his fifth album, he'd had his first crossover hit. He's getting a lot of praise. He's been on the cover of Rolling Stone. Everything's going great. What are you doing? <laughs> you want to make a movie? What a mistake. You can kill your career. A rock opera, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and no one had done this before. And he's a kid from Minneapolis. It's not like it's a band. It's not Lennon and McCartney. This is one guy. And they said, okay. They said, okay. And, and they said, you can, you can write it, and we'll get a screenwriter to, you know, flesh it out, and you can star in it, and it'll be your band, and yeah, we'll do this thing. That's interesting. And it, and it was successful. Vision of his story as opposed to reverse of the, the album first and then the yeah. story around it. Yeah, so the album came out and the movie came out and we were on the Purple Rain tour and it got, uh, he won the Academy Award for the best soundtrack. When he walked out of that office, the people in the office must have gone, oh shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wonder if that would happen to that. That was Mo yeah. Austin, and that was uh, that was the, yeah. the old record men. I mean, they weren't old at the time, but they were. They those were record men. Yeah, they were the ones. The way yeah. record men used to be in the era of, you know, the '60s and the '70s, and they knew what they had. They had this talented kid, and they said, "Yeah, let's, we'll put money behind you," and they were right. Yeah, it was such a crossover. I mean, that 1999 was, <coughs> was a big album, yeah. and and crossover, like you said earlier, like that's yeah. it's on different charts. It's it's really hitting. It's on MTV. If you all remember, right. you know, he was in a good spot to follow up with something. If he had a strong record, it was going to do fine. As, as long as, as he didn't blow it. Yeah, yeah, but then to throw a movie into the works, I mean, he could have. Yeah. At least he had a lot of energy. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> is there a version of uh, when Doves Cry with a bassline in it? The bass is on the tape. It's on the multi-track tape. Wow. It was just muted in the final mix. Okay. It's on there. It's just, you know, messing around and thinking, this isn't quite right. Um, they're just muting it. That's why there's wow. a mute button. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's interesting listening to this record again and being reminded of how real genius knows when to show it off and when to just be simple. Just simple chord progressions are fine. You don't have to be really sophisticated. A simple drum pattern is fine. You can add the complexity in other elements. It can be in the sonic elements. It can be in the virtuoso great guitar solo. It can be the complexity can be in your lyrics. But everything doesn't have to show. Has, you don't have to show off everything. Keep it all really simple and have one magic ingredient, maybe two. Uh, it was smart record making. I don't know how he knew how to do that, but he knew what he was doing. Well, that first Lynn drum had, there was all Steve Gadd drum samples, but you could order samples and they would send you the chips. Did you ever do any of that with that, with that machine? I, don't, I never did because I didn't know that, but did you know that you could pull the chips out of their sockets? Yeah. You could reverse them 180 degrees, put them back in, and it would play the sample backwards. No way. Seriously? Yeah. I don't know how they did that, but you pull it out. It's like, I don't remember if it's not 16 pin, it might be 32 pin, but you pull them out, you turn it 180 degrees, put it back in the socket, and it plays it backwards. Wow. That is wild. That's why he liked that one, because he tried the Lindrome when it came up, but he didn't like that one. And also the clock 
on that LM1 was kind of funky. So as it would warm up, it would sort of drift a little bit. <laughs> it feels a little bit more human yeah. than the very, very rigid later model. Was there any other, there wasn't any sequencing at all Apart from, I mean, oh gosh! Yeah, he didn't. It was all live. That's him playing you know, it. Playing That's him playing too, everything. Yeah. Yeah. But he just played on the on top of the loop. Yeah. The loop would go around, and he'd add all the stuff as the loop was playing. Yeah. Like on, on yeah. "I Would Die for You," is so he's going like a he's playing like a sequencer yeah. type pattern. Oh, the sequence pattern that, actually that, that was uh, on on that particular <laughs> case on "I Would Die for You." That was Matt Fink because that was a live track oh, okay. that was cut oh, live, and that you, was right, Matt Fink right. that did program. Okay. Oh, yeah, cool. it was very, very simple. But Prince, for yeah. his own parts, he would just play them. Yeah. He didn't have the patience. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, working with that live material and how it changed from uh, the concert to the final mix. So the bed track for Purple Rain, I Would Die For You and Baby I'm a Star were cut on August 3rd, 1983 in a mobile truck at First Avenue, the club. And uh, I had been hired by him, but I hadn't yet arrived in Minneapolis. The contract had just been signed. That was recorded by David Z. I don't remember if the truck was the Dave Hewitt mobile from yeah. New York. It may have been, because we used that one a lot. But anyway, uh, the bed track was cut, but it was drum machine, so there weren't that many open mics, because it was drum machine and it was synth, bass synth as well. So um, we brought the tapes back to the house, his home studio, this is all before Paisley Park was built, and uh, we could overdub it and add vocals and add more guitar parts and synth parts and mix it at home. But uh, he worked a lot at Sunset Sound. Before Paisley Park was built, he worked a lot at Sunset. Do you know why he picked Sunset Sound to work out of? What? I don't know. When I yeah. joined him, he had He'd been working been. there, and he, had, he he just loved it. He yeah, loved that old Domitio, is what he did. He was yeah, the he Domitio was, console, yeah. and then when we planned Paisley Park, he commissioned uh, the great Frank Domitio to build him a copy of that console at mm. Sunset Sound. Yeah, I built all the EQs for that console. Oh, you did? Yeah, <laughs> when I owned API. So when that, that's right, when, when that new Domitio, when Prince got the new Domitio console for Paisley Park, Frank Domitio came out to the house, and after he was finished with it, he swept it. That console was flat from zero hertz to 70K. It was at the the signal path was all discrete circuits. There were no integrated circuits. It had transformers and everything. It was just flat. What a console! Yeah, it was Frank amazing. Was crazy. Yeah, it was a remarkable <laughs> console. Uh, you may know the song "The Ballad of Dorothy Parker." That was the first. Yeah, that's the first yeah. song we did on that console. Uh, Prince uh, was so eager to record. He finally sent Frank home. He just said go home <laughs> and let Susan finish it. If it's not done, just go home because he needed to record. So Frank gets on a plane, goes home to Los Angeles. I put up tape. We record the song, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. There's something wrong with this console. Because it sounded like this. It just sounded all muffled because Frank hadn't finished troubleshooting it. And I thought, I know this console is flat. What, what's going on? There's no high end. It just sounded awful. And I just kept thinking, any second now he's going to stop, yell at me, have a big fit, go upstairs, and then I can figure out what's wrong. 
But he wouldn't. He just kept going and going and going. <laughs> and he kept overdubbing and overdubbing. And then he did the vocals. And then he just kept going and going. And we mixed it. And it's like a baby when you're feeding it baby food. And you keep thinking, okay, any spoonful now, this baby's going to stop. He just kept eating. He would have stopped. So he finally stopped after we mixed it, like a day later, like 24 hours later. And I finally, like, oh, at last... He finally went to bed. I got the voltmeter, and I saw that one half of the power supplies were oh. down. So instead of bipolar 15, we just had 15. Oh, wow. So there was whole, one whole, I don't know if it was positive or the negative, but one whole side was completely shot. So we had like half of the headroom, half of the frequency response. It sounded like this. But the song is about a dream. And he talks about taking a bath. A bubble bath with his pants on. It's, it was like all a dream. So yeah, he didn't. He didn't care. So it just. It just. Oh worked. my god. <laughs> in in uh, a book that I read it's called Prince in the Studio, there's some quotes from you about um, when late at night you would go outside the studio uh, while he did his vocals, and that sometimes it got a little creepy. Can you talk about that? I just remember what it was like to be on the other side of that door and hear some of those screams coming through the door. Like, did you notice the vocals? <laughs> Who yeah. does that? <laughs> How can you be that fearless? Yeah. And just, and then the next day, do it again. Like, he, he never wrecked his voice, never had surgery on his vocal cords. That's how he sang. I never saw him do vocal warm-ups, ever. But to hear that coming from under the door, yeah. and then walk in, and then just, yeah, there it is. And I'll never forget, the first song I put up for him was Darling Nikki, and he, he went upstairs, and he, you know, he said, Tell, call me when it's ready, and I was pushing up this rough mix as his tech, like not really, I knew how the equipment worked, but I, I wasn't an artist as an engineer. I didn't know how to artistically use the equipment. So I'm just winging it. But I was a Prince fan, so I thought, well, this sounds good. <laughs> I was just going for it. And anyway, and, and, and to push that up and to hear that, I, for four years, I was with him for over four years, every new song, with only one exception, every new song, I had the experience of thinking to myself, this may be the best song he's ever done. I think this is my favorite one. I don't think there's anything better than this. This is the best one. Every damn time. There is so much stuff in that vault. There is so much stuff in that vault. So much stuff. You mentioned before um, him like coming up with a concept for how all the records you worked with him on. Like what, what the flow was going to be, what the songs were going to be that were going to be on that record. And so other things would get recorded and discarded because right. they don't fit the, the flow of it. He was an old school record maker yeah. he was making an album <laughs> what does that mean 35 <laughs> minutes of music that's the artistic yeah. experience like yeah. watching a television program or a movie he's making and releasing an album he was smart enough to know that an album is not you know your eight most recent songs or your 10 most recent songs or even your 10 best songs an album is a work of art that expresses what you want to say today about who you are, about your view of the world, about your view of yourself, your view of your relationship with the culture and the times and your competition. So three or four songs would form the kernel or the seed of an album. 
the seed of this album is obviously the song Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. I think the Beautiful Ones is uh, an important core song on this record. I think uh, Computer Blue may be as well. Let's Go Crazy, I think so, because that's more, this is about us. Other songs were a little bit after the fact, and When Doves Cry was one of them. Uh -huh. um, Take Me With You was the last song that went on that record. For all of his records, there were the core songs that says, this is this album. Other songs were chosen to complement the seed and great songs were rejected. One of my favorite songs of his is a song called Moonbeam Levels. He recorded it before I joined him in early 83, I think. Um, and we, we sequenced it on this album yeah. and he took it off. And we sequenced it on Around the World in a Day, and he took it off. And we even put it on the Parade album, and he took it off. And then it got too late, and he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't release it. It was very personal, and yeah. I think he just didn't want people to hear it. Wow. Not, not, he just wasn't ready. Does that exist out there as a bootleg or anything? It's going to come out, yeah. yeah. I have it at home. A, yeah. a fan sent it to me. Yeah. Uh, it does exist. And I, I spoke with... Um, Torre, who's writing the liner notes for a bootleg, uh, not a bootleg, a, a box set that's about yeah. to be released, wow. and it's on there. Oh, cool. It's been remastered, so you'll hear it. It's, um, it's really beautiful. It's called Moonbeam Levels, and it's, it's extraordinary. It's, uh, if you had, like, one thing that you would like to convey about Prince, because, I mean, he's one of the most mysterious artists there is, what would, what would you say about it? There's, there's so many things, uh, I won't say the sublime or what I think is the best about him, but there's something about him that I think is not well understood, and I, I would like to share that perspective with you. It was lost on Prince's imitators. I think one of the reasons that Prince, he's apparently loved, because since his passing, there have been a lot of people who've admitted how much he meant to them. I'd like to point out his generosity of spirit with regard to women. Prince never, for all of his love of sex and women, never approached women as a conqueror or a predator. The typical song, the typical Prince song was a B-side and it's called Do Me Baby from the, con yes, from the Controversy 1999 era. He's saying, you, do me. You get all the power. I'm taking all this power, <laughs> giving it to you. Now you do me, is what he's saying. He empowered women. That's what he did. Take me with you. Darling Nikki. He wakes up and there's a phone number on the stairs and she says, thank you for a funky time. Call me up whenever you want to grind. She's holding the cards. She's calling the shots. He brought women to work with him, like Wendy and Lisa, and like me and Peggy McCreary, and and we Sylvia were his, so uh, yeah, Sylvia worked yeah. with him later. Yeah, yeah, Peggy, a lot of us, and we were his equals. There was no. He never treated us like he was doing us a favor. He <laughs> empowered us and let us do our thing, and he stood out of our way while we did our thing. His imitators talked about, baby, I'm going to do this to you, and I'm going to do that to you, and talked about how they are so much better than their rivals. He didn't do that. He, he, he empowered women, and I think women loved him for it. I, I think you've got this guy on stage, the hair, the makeup, the earrings, the high heels, <laughs> the bikini underwear, the trench coat, and he's so masculine. 
<laughs> and he's so comfortable with that. And he doesn't care if you think he's gay. He's straight, but he didn't care. I think um, that's something that people don't talk about much when they talk about Prince and this rivalry with Prince and Michael Jackson and who they were. Believe me, people's daughters were safe with Prince. They were very safe with Prince. Prince gave them license. All of his women, take all this power, take it, it's yours. Do with it what you want. And that's, that, that, he, was, he was a man ahead of his time in that regard. Uh, not, I mean, not, as an artist, he was ahead of his time. That's not, there aren't men like that, but <laughs> publicly, there weren't that many. We had a, a couple of record plant dates with him. Mm. And, uh, you know, there was always the rule that you didn't talk to him when he was on the stage mm. and stuff. And it, you know, it was kind of, I think it was probably because he didn't want, he just wanted to be like in his own world. But we had one guy on our crew that just, this guy Skip, that walked up and was doing something with the mic and just started talking to him about, like, farming, Aww. you know. And, the, the you know, his, his manager guy or the, whoever kind of, like, handled him came rushing up and he went like this, no, 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 it's fine. And he was, like, the only guy that was allowed to talk directly to him because mm. he wasn't talking about music and wasn't talking <laughs> about music. So they got a lot of jobs because I want that guy, that the skip guy, yeah. with those guys, the record plant guys, bring those in to record, you know? And it was because he, he had this guy that he could, like, talk to about non-related stuff, farming in Minneapolis and, and boating and, you know, stuff he like that. He liked that. that. He yeah. wanted to be treated like a human, and he didn't like being called great. He didn't like people coming up to him and being afraid of him or praising him or saying, oh, you're so great. Because when someone tells you you're great, it means you can stop now. You don't right. have to do any more. You've arrived. Yeah. And it defeats the striving that every artist wants to have. So he would prefer that you just not tell him that he's great. Just let him do his thing and have the self-doubt that every artist needs if they're going to actually be great in their own minds. He much preferred someone, just, just talk to him like he's a guy. Yeah, his opening line was, do you fish? And then everybody like rushed, yeah, see, that rushed the stage work. and he was like, no, 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 it's yeah, fine. That would work. Yeah, and he just, he just said, do you fish? You know? from Minnesota. Yeah, and that's the thing. It was like, you know, he could, you know, that was the guy that he could talk to. He didn't have to yeah. worry. You know, it was kind of, it was now really we can cool. have a conversation. Yeah. Yes, you had your hand up and then you grab. So when this chapter ended, how was it? You were just tired out after every day. Oh, there's a story. And what happened? Well, we were together, we were pretty much joined at the hip because I was his full-time employee. I wasn't like an independent contractor. I worked for him and he worked all the time. And then I worked all the time. I did not, I worked Christmas, I worked New Year's, I worked, worked birthdays. And when I say like a work day was like typically, hours. it was typically 24. An average, I mean, 12 days, I'm not exaggerating, was a, was a, a half day off. If you only work for 12 hours, it's like, boo, I've got the whole rest of the day. It, it was it was a tour of duty, and uh, it was near the end of my time with him. We were working on the second Madhouse record, and I was in L.A. working on the second Madhouse record. He was at home in Minneapolis because Paisley Park had just opened its doors, so now he finally had a real facility, and he had other engineers. We could now hire a staff of assistants and more engineers. So I was in L.A., and he flew out to one L.A. one night, and he couldn't find me. I was on a date. <laughs> I was on a date, my first one in years, uh, and um, 
and he couldn't find me, and he was furious the next day. <laughs> he was livid. And we went into a private room at the Hollywood soundstage, and it was like we went toe-to-toe. -to -toe. It was like, okay, brother. <laughs> this is, when you work for someone, it, it's a voluntary contract. You don't have to hire me. I don't have to work for you. We can, you can decide to fire me. I can decide to quit. This is a voluntary arrangement. Either one of us can break it at any time. And we just looked at each other and we realized we're both ready to renegotiate because it was just too much. A life sentence. Yeah, it couldn't. You know, it couldn't be not for him or for me. It was, you know, time. I had done my part. But so. oh, that was also the story where he said he would find you. Oh, that was a different story. Um, I know it's a different time. But no, the, but... Prince used to like James Brown. He thought he thought James Brown did it, so he would do it too. Yeah. So he'd point to his band on stage, and if they made a mistake, he'd find them. So if he'd point to you on stage, it meant you know fifty bucks. And, yeah. God, one time we were at Sunset Sound. Oh, this was terrible. But uh, he was in a really good mood. This is the only way I'm still alive to tell the tale. <laughs> he was in a good mood that day, and uh, I'm I mispatched something. And he just kind of jokingly said, $50 fine for you, Susan. <laughs> and it just got me the wrong way because he had my whole life. And his shoes yeah. were worth more than that life. Like this guy, yeah. like what more do you want from me? <laughs> and I just got mad and I opened up my purse and I opened up my wallet and I took out whatever cash I had and I threw it at him. <laughs> and I said, you want my money now? You have my whole life. You have my entire life. You have everything of me. Here, take my money too. And I threw it at him and I stormed out. And I thought, Huh. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, as soon as you have the big gesture, now you feel relieved. You know, it's like, oh, God. Now i got to go back. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the only good way out of that is to storm out and never go back. But <laughs> I had to go back. So I did, and it was fine. But, yeah, that was the other story. So, yeah. yes. He kind of always seemed to me like he was a little bit of a disturbed genius. Like... If that makes any sense. Like, we do. Like, the, you were talking about, like, the self-doubt kind of thing and him wanting to record vocals without anybody in the room. You know, all of us, um, uh, those of us who've been around a while, we've seen artists who are disturbed. I don't think he was disturbed. Well, I, you know, you read and hear things like, you know, he was really difficult to work with, but it seems That's like true. to hear you talk, it was, you know, I mean, I mean, there's he, obviously tensions when you're around someone as much as you're around them, but it sounds like it was just an absolute joy. Well, here's the thing. An artist, Prince was, this, here's why this was possible, why his life was possible. He was that much of a genius. In order to, uh, and Joseph Campbell talked about this in Hero with a Thousand Faces and the Archetypal Myth, in order to write for other people, to be able to express a universal archetypal truth, you have to go to a deep place in your psyche. You have to go in that deep well of creativity. Brian Wilson did it. Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Lou Reed. <coughs> when you go to that deep place in your psyche, Joseph Campbell wrote about it as the hero's journey, <coughs> just like The Hobbit or Harry Potter or whatever those other wizards are, Star Wars. <laughs> anyway, so you go off on this journey that you don't necessarily want to go to and you're scared and no one can do it for you and then you throw the ring into the dragon's mouth or whatever you're supposed to do and you come back 
scarred. And you return home, the hero always returns home, but the hero is never the same. He's scarred psychically. So in order to write that much and be that prolific, you must protect your psyche because you go to this dangerous place really easily and often. You put up a wall and you tell your management, don't let anyone approach me. I've, I've got my system and there's the system that allows me to create. These are my people that I'm familiar with. These are my places. This is the system that within this circle I can create. And that allows you to have a very long career because you figured out an armor to protect yourself. If you watch the movie Amy about Amy Winehouse, you'll see what happens when you can't. What happens when you when an artist and artists are prone to do this? When you say, "No, I'm just going to be myself, and I'm going to let people see me. I'm going to let them. I'm going to let the photographers take my picture. I'm going to just be candid in interviews. I'll answer questions. Yeah, watch what happens. It's damaging to the psyche. So." He was not disturbed. He was actually very, 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 very smart. He was smart enough as a young man to know he needed to do that if he was going to have a long career. So he did. But to the outside world, he appeared as a real enigma. And what was really sad is that the general public at that time thought that, oh, Michael Jackson, he's so sweet. And Michael Jackson loves children. And Michael Jackson's such a good guy. And he's so wholesome. And he's the guy we all love. That prince, he's just a nutcase. He's just, he's dangerous, that he's got prince. got a dirty mind. He's got a dirty <laughs> mind. And if they only knew, yeah. you know, that, that, that this man, if they, only, if they only knew. But he didn't want them to know. He was okay with that. Yes? Did you, was there a certain moment, and sometimes it's after a release, but I always like to ask people this, is like, when did you know that this record was special? Was it like after a certain song, or... Was it 10 years later? Was it, you know, when was, do you remember when that moment was? I was so deeply in it in order to perform my function. We heard it said earlier today, this is a service-oriented profession. And my job was to be the hands and the awake human body that kept this train rolling. So I, I wasn't analytical about it. Not then and not even afterward. Um, I remember working with a band in the 90s, and this band asked me, Susan, have you ever been on tour? And I said, you mean other than the Purple Rain tour and the Sign of the Times tour and the Around the World with April? Like, other than those tours? No. <laughs> they, they weren't even aware that I had done that, and to some extent, I don't think I was either. I think it's only been since he died recently, and I've had more requests to talk about him. Only recently I've begun to realize that was a really big deal, wasn't it? But I, I don't, I'm not, a, you know, it just is what it is. When you're deeply involved in something and your role is to facilitate it, you don't necessarily have the property of being able to analyze it. But you also said that you you knew, like, as you were a fan of his music anyway, and you, as soon as you just put up Darling Nikki, you're like, I know this is oh, great. I or, knew it was great. I just I didn't know that, perspective everyone, around that it. everyone else would. I knew I loved it, but yeah. I didn't know that it would be a hit. Yeah. I, I did not know that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't, sometimes I think you know that something has resonance and it's so of a quality that, I mean, and you know you like it. It's you know you are working on something special. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I knew it was it was extraordinary, but I I was too naive to know 
yeah. how exceptional it was. I just was too naive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so um, I don't know if, how many are aware, but so now you're in a doctoral program in the neuroscience and its relationship to music. You mentioned Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. So it's, it, looking back on all this, you know, so in the hero's journey, there's a reluctance, right? Oh, I can't, you know. And so then you go into, but then you're kind of forced into it. And then there's opposition, you defeat the opposition, you, you reach the elixir, right? You reach the elixir, and then it's the return home. Mm. And upon and the return home, and the, on, the, on, the, on the back end of it, you reach, the opposition catches back up to you again. Okay, maybe that could be Warner Brothers, I don't know. But <laughs> so, and then, and then you make it back home to the village to share it and to help others reach their point of entry into the wilderness themselves alone. When you look back on this whole thing, um, working within the realms of the your doctoral research now, and you look back on all this and, and coupling it with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, where would you say the opposition on the front end was, it, if you were close enough to him to see that, and on the back end, the opposition? Yeah. Um, after Prince died, uh, and just recently, uh, I went back to Minneapolis, and there were some shows at First Avenue, the original revolution, and Andre Simone, Prince's childhood friend, came uh, and joined the revolution on stage and played <coughs> so good. Played Let's Work on bass, and he played Party Up and some of that early stuff. And I got a chance to ask Andre Simone, what was Prince like when you guys were teenagers? And I said to Andre, everybody's asking this question, who was this guy? Andre, you're the one who knows. Because uh, Prince had a tumultuous home life and he left home. He was thrown out of his home when he was like 14, 15 years old. He was literally homeless. He had nowhere to go. So Andre's mom took him in. So Prince lived with his friend Andre. <laughs> Andre said, here's how it would go. We'd come home from school, throw our books down. Andre said, I'd go down to the basement. Andre had a little recording set up down in the basement. Andre would play around with something, put on a little bass part, put on a little keyboard parts. Prince would come in a little bit later and Andre would say, look, Prince, you know, when they're like 16, look what I just did, bad, right? And Prince would listen to it and go, yeah, that's great. Then Andre would go and go out with his friends or go on a date or, you know, go to bed, do his homework, whatever. The next morning, Andre would get up for breakfast. Prince would have been up all night, would hold up a cassette and say, Look what I did. <laughs> Prince would stay up all night writing and recording. And I asked Andre, what did he want? And I asked Andre, did you guys want to be the same kind of musician? And he asked what I meant. And I said, did you want to be, I knew he wanted to be a star, did you? And he said, no. He said, none of us were that musician. <laughs> that musician, the musician Prince was wanted to be a star. He wanted to matter. So you're 24 years old, about to make your sixth album. You've been on the cover of Rolling Stone. You're about to make a movie. How much work do you have to do from the age of 16 to 24 in that eight-year period? How much work do you have to do to do that in eight years? That's what that kid wanted. He, he wanted it that badly, that he learned to play all those instruments and write that well and record that well and sing that well and get that record deal and go on those tours and be that competitive because he wanted that that badly. The others just wanted to play, just wanted to have a good time, be in a band and have a good time. 
And they, they had Jimmy and Terry and Andre, they all had really good careers, Lisa and Wendy, but none of them were that guy. That's, I mean, that, that force, he came from within. He was launched when the pressure of a bad home life pulls the slingshot back that far, mm. by the time it's released, that pressure can, can launch you. It can propel you very, very far. And his did. Mm. And he opened for, uh, for a while, he opened for Rick James. Yeah. And he would always learn, he would always find out Rick's first song and then he would close with it. <laughs> and he did it he did it later on We because I worked for Rick for a while during that period and you were forbidden to even use the word prince in the house because he was that's why he had the He's Mary so Jane girls and the do-rags is because he was trying to compete <laughs> and he did it it was for him it was just a it was a game it was a kid's game yeah. you know find the secret send his guys out, find the opening song. They would work it up in the dressing room before they went on there, and he would close with it. And it, he did it not to, like, piss on him. He did it just as kind of like a, hey, let's play this thing, you know? And Rick would just go ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he just oh, yeah. absolutely hated it. Instead of doing the same thing to him, instead of, like, opening with his closing song or yeah. something like that, you know? But it was, yeah, it was just the, the, the whole antics thing it was just continuous. But yeah. He was very competitive, but in that schoolyard kind of way. Yeah, it was. It was a schoolyard thing. He was yeah. like throwing sand at him and, and expecting to get sand back, but it, it was just no reaction. And it was like, <laughs> he just continued to do it. And nobody in the, in the Rick James camp saw the humor in it. They just thought he was just <laughs> And all Rick, all he could have done, you know, he would have just put out the, you know, a, a fake song list and not open with that song and play it back. But he wouldn't do that. He refused to do it. So oh it was a game. It was, it was just hilarious. But you were not allowed to even. throw sand high enough. Yeah, exactly. You could not say the word Prince in that house. It would just, you were like instantly, you know, here's your plane ticket home. Get out of here. <laughs> well, he was, he was smart and he, and he was quick. And um, he did not. Well, he, he kind of did suffer fools gladly, but he certainly, by gladly, meant he got a good laugh out of fools. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want them working for him, but he didn't want to associate with them, but he thought they were funny. Well, he had the last laugh with the, when, he, when he dropped his record deal, and he did that tour, and he gave a, re a CD with every ticket, and he walked in. <laughs> Musicology? Yeah, and he yeah. got, uh, you know, he... Five dates, he had given away a hundred thousand CDs, and the RIA rules were that if you have, you have to have a receipt for each CD, and you get a gold record or you get a platinum record, because it said on the ticket with this ticket purchase you get a CD. Yes. He got a gold and a platinum record within like a couple weeks, and and they had to give it to him, and then they changed the rules. It had to be through a retail outlet. It was like you know he did it one more time. It's like I don't have a record company, but guess what? I got a record. I got a gold record. Fuck you. You know, it's like yeah. He, he was smart enough to look at the system. And he was smart enough to ask the question that any three-year-old would ask, which is why. Yeah. If they say, well, you know, you can't, you know, you can't get out of your contract because it's a contract. Yeah. He'd, he'd say, why? He, he, he uh, those are good questions. And then changed the name to a symbol because the contract said your name or any name that you change yourself to. So he changed the name to a symbol so and it was like, name. contract's <laughs> void. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I came uh, here, I think, the last five years or so. And I've had a lot of good fun, listened to a lot of good music, laughed a whole bunch, but 
This is the first time I cried at the, uh, <laughs> the event here. This is great. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. I really, really yeah. appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.